giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Scott Miller, CEO of Dragon Innovation and co-founder of Bolt. Scott, thanks for joining me. Oh, super psyched to be here. Thanks, Chad. So CEO of Dragon Innovation and co-founder of Bolt. Not everyone listening may be familiar with what those two things are, so love to hear in your own words a little bit about it. Sure. So I had spent uh, 10 great years at iRobot helping to build the first 4 million or so Roombas. And in that journey, realized how hard it is to bring a product from an idea to the shelf. So at Dragon, what we wanted to do is take everything we'd learned at iRobot and then help other companies that were going down a similar journey. And for us, typically, they'll come to us when they have a working prototype and are thinking about building in volumes of maybe 5,000 to 5 million. Mm -hmm. And we can help them think through what are the different steps to get there? What are the things to avoid to generate a good outcome? And generally in consumer electronic products. Mm -hmm. So that's where we focus at Dragon. And then at Bolt, we're a fairly early stage uh, VC fund. Initially, we were focused on hardware, but now we take a little broader um, perspective as well. Okay. So for startups that are coming to you, actually, is it all startups or are there existing companies who are doing hardware for the first time that also work with Dragon? Yeah, so we've seen our business evolve a fair amount. Initially, we started in 09 working with effectively startups. Mm -hmm. Um, Many were venture backed. Some came from Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And over the last couple of years, we've seen much larger companies, Fortune 50, Fortune 100, that are not traditional hardware companies. They mm-hmm. may build other products, but they want to get into connected hardware and be able to leverage all the advantages of IoT and often reoccurring revenue streams. So they'll come to us and you know they have the same problems that, that startups have, mm-hmm. that they don't know how to go from A to B, but they're just looking at building in a much, much larger scale. So once someone comes to you, what are you paying attention to in terms of, you know, maybe red flags or yellow flags about whether uh, this might not be successful or these are the challenges that this company might face? Sure. So I'll use the analogy of an alphabet, which maybe we can circle back to later. Mm -hmm. But typically for us in the old days, we would think about A is the idea, the light bulb goes off, you know what you want to build. And then Z is a product delivered to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And most customers that would come to us would think they're further in the alphabet than they actually are. Yeah. But what we really look for, and again, our focus is one to many, not zero to one, Mm -hmm. is I like to see a working prototype. And you can break that down into what we call a works-like, which is more of a functional prototype, or said a different way, like a roadkill, yeah. that if you're building a robot, you might have you know motors on one side of a piece of plywood and sensors on the other and a processor in the middle. And then it looks like, which is the aesthetic model. Mm-hmm. And ideally, they'd be combined into one works like, looks like. But that's the first of three parts. The second is the bill of materials or bomb, which is effectively just the list of ingredients that mm-hmm. goes into it. And then the third is the um, combination of the mechanical CAD and the electrical CAD, which are you know effectively the files that you need to build the thing. Mm-hmm. And I find by looking at those parts, we get a really good feel for the design maturity. Mm-hmm. Often, if there's a lot of hand waving that, oh, we have the bomb, but it's not ready yet, or things mm-hmm. like that, it's kind of a good indication that the design isn't quite as mature 
sure. Yeah. Or looking at the CAD files, when you're injection molding something, you can't have straight walls because due to the shrinkage of the resin, it, it can't be ejected from the tool. If you're making a cup, it has to look more like a Dixie cup than a cylinder. Mm-hmm. So we can look at the files and see if they've thought through any of that. And those are all good signs of kind of how experienced the team is and how far the, the mm-hmm. design is along. So being completely not a hardware person at all. It actually sounds, if someone had all three of those things, it sounds to me like they're very far along. So I can see why people who come to you say, we're almost there. We're almost at Z. Right. What's actually involved after that then that people don't understand? Generally at that point, they're in pretty good shape to start thinking about design for manufacture and assembly Mm -hmm. or DFM and DFA. And what those are is I like to start with design for assembly, which is how do you put all the parts together? And there's a few different approaches to make it more efficient. Mm -hmm. The two that are usually looked at, one I call the Justin Chan approach, which is one of the guys I work with at iRobot. And I know when I was learning, I put my product in front of him. I was at iRobot at the time, and it was kind of a little neurotic space creature that was going to run around. And he methodically took it apart and tried to put it together. And every time he put it together, if a part could go two different ways, but only one way was right, mm-hmm. that was sort of a demerit or mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, you know, half of the time this is going to be right. But of course, it's compounded over the number of parts you have. So that's one approach. And then the other, maybe more scientific, is called Boothroyd Dewhurst, which assigns effectively an assembly time for each step. And the goal is to minimize the number of parts and therefore minimize the assembly. Mm -hmm. So small parts that are really difficult to grasp are penalized, whereas big parts that are easy to manipulate and can only go together one way are more favorable. Mm -hmm. So we would typically do this design for assembly and then design for manufacture approach. And the DFM is looking not at the whole assembly level, but at the individual part level. Mm -hmm. So if we think of injection molding, ideally we want to have that part be able to eject from a tool without any undercuts or the need for slides Mm -hmm. and think through, you know, how does that work? What is the parting line, which is where the two halves of the tool come together? And does it have sufficient things like wall thickness and, and draft angle? Right. So say someone is at that point and they're working with you, give me a sense of what unit volume you need to be at to even be considering all everything that you just said. Yeah, so that's always also one of the first questions we ask. Mm-hmm. We I think we have a list of 10 different things when you're thinking about ready, getting ready to work with a factory. But the unit volume is critical. So if you're building 10 of them, you'd approach it in one way. You mm-hmm. might do more 3D printing or machining or even however mm-hmm. you hand fabricate them. For us, we like to see ideally 5,000 units or more. Mm-hmm. And we can go down to as few as 1,000. But we really like to get into things like injection molding, die casting, stamping, rotomolding, or mm-hmm. more of the high volume fabrication techniques. And mm-hmm. why the volume matters there is that it's a whole other process to create the tool. You have to create a thing that then creates a thing you want to build. Right. And that introduces more cost, lead time, complexity, chances to, to mess things up. Mm-hmm. And that's where our expertise tends to lie, that we can help navigate that. The other thing that helps as you're building in higher volume is effectively you can amortize the cost of the tool mm-hmm. over every unit. Mm-hmm. So if you're just building one unit, it doesn't often make sense to build a tool to do that. Right. But if you're building a million units, then you know the, the tool is a millionth of the cost across all the units. Mm-hmm. 
And does Dragon have relationships then with the people who do the manufacturing? We do. Yeah. So we have about a thousand factories in our database and they mm-hmm. range from ones that are tier one, um, like Foxconn and Jable that can do everything under the sun with amazing capability all the way to equally incredible, but up uh, tier three that most people don't know about and mm-hmm. are much better suited for lower volumes. Mm-hmm. We initially got our start in China back in the early 2000s and spent 10 years building up some expertise there and and basically a network of different factories from final assembly to the tool shops to molding to PCBs and what have you. And then started expanding to the U.S. We're firm believers that you should always build locally if you can. Mm -hmm. At some point, then it can become more of a challenge, but that's a good place to start. And then we've subsequently branched out into Europe. There's a lot of good stuff in Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe. And then about a year ago, we branched out into Asia Pacific outside of China. Mm -hmm. So looking at Taiwan, Johor, Penang, Batam, and regions, Vietnam a little bit, regions like that. Mm -hmm. So the one area that we don't have well covered is Mexico and South America yet, but we'd, we'd like to get there. And that's manufacturing and factories. What about clients? Are your clients everywhere in all those places or? Yes, I'd say... By revenue, probably 70% of our revenue is in the U.S., and mm-hmm. it's um, East Coast, West Coast in the middle. So it's spread out, but maybe a little more density on the coast. And then we have a lot of customers in Norway, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Others in Europe, and then periodically a few in China. What we find in China is they tend to work with the factory directly, and it doesn't always have the best outcome from them just because mm-hmm. there's still specialized knowledge they need. But for, I guess, clear reasons, they, they tend to want to work directly there. So we're a little less represented. Yeah. So now that we've walked through sort of that whole description, I'm curious, what kind of company do you refer to Dragon as? Is it a consulting company? So so we've gone through an interesting journey. We started as a consulting shop. Mm Mm-hmm. And kind of the genesis with that is I worked my way up to a VP of engineering at iRobot and had a great team of about 70 people, but I just wasn't doing any hands-on work. And I'm an engineer, I'm an ME, so I like to build stuff. And Colin, the CEO, just kept referring people to me saying, hey, Scott, you should talk to this startup and that startup and see if you can help them. And I found that I had so much more fun doing that than my day job mm-hmm. that in 09, sort of at the worst part of the recession with one kid out and one kid on the way, I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to do my own thing. So that kind of got me going. And I grew it organically, just you know, driven by revenue mm-hmm. for the first three or four years. And then I was sitting down with a friend of mine who was a VC over at Flybridge saying, hey, Matt, I see Kickstarter taking off and it breaks my heart that they, I love the idea, but these entrepreneurs or creators will come to us after they've successfully funded a campaign. And it's sort of the story you'd expect that they didn't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They didn't raise enough money. They promised something they can't build and they promised it too quickly. So by the time they came to us, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'd love to help them, but they just, I can't do it. So I said to Matt, like, hey, you know, what do you think if we did our own crowdfunding platform where we actually help them prepare ahead of time? And then once we know that they're in a good spot, then they go and launch. 
And I didn't realize it, but double-sided marketplaces and things like that are catnip for VC. Mm-hmm. So Matt was all excited and encouraged me and worked really carefully and closely with me for six months to put together a pitch deck. I think I started with a 30-page Word document, you know, explaining mm-hmm. how I was going to spend every penny. And Matt was like, no, 10 slides, big picture. Uh-huh. I was like, really? But he was right. So we did that. We got a term sheet from Flybridge, brought in Foundry, and then some other great VCs. And we're off to the races with the crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think with that, in hindsight, we had a great idea. We were just a little bit too late, and Kickstarter had mm-hmm. too much momentum. Mm-hmm. And all that people wanted to do was raise as much money as they could, mm-hmm. even if it meant they may not succeed. We're, we're really passionate mm-hmm. about doing what we said and delivering to the customer. Right. right. Well, and to your point, people don't know that they didn't know that they were right. going to be successful. Like people assume that they're further along than they are and that it's not as hard as they think that it is. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. you just look through all these stories on Kickstarter and people have the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. We love Kickstarter. We always were good friends with them. I remember with uh, John Dematos, who used to run hardware over there, mm-hmm. he and I would be trying to drum up customers to come on our assorted platforms. <laughs> and I always thought about the old TV show with the sheepdog and the, the wolf you oh, know, yeah. walking to work, fighting during the day and walking home. Yeah, We were like that. And John subsequently become a really good friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but we realized that this just wasn't viable. So luckily, we were able to wind it down before we ran out of money. And then we're like, uh-oh, what do we do now? Because mm-hmm. we've got all these great software people and we've got a pretty real burn. So that's where we pivoted to building a few of our own products from the Dragon Standard Bomb or Bill of Materials and then getting deeper into Product Planner, mm-hmm. which is really uh, much more over our foundation of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And how do you get ready and use software tools to do kind of repetitive tasks? Mm-hmm. And we did that for a while, and we still have a really strong consulting business. And and these days, our focus is uh, back to consulting. Mm -hmm. In the middle, we'd been fortunate to go through an acquisition with Avnet, which is a very large $19 billion electronic component distributor. And with that, the consulting resonated a lot more with them. So Mm. um, in these last couple of years, we've been really doubling down on that and continuing to work with startups, but also these massive, you know, multi-billion dollar companies Mm -hmm. that are a great impedance match for, um, for Avnet. Are they a channel for you? They're bringing those potential customers to you? We usually bring them to to Avnet, um, which is kind of cool. And they certainly do bring some to us. Mm -hmm. But what they're looking to do is to grow and expand. Mm -hmm. And they have their traditional customer sets, which is companies that buy electronic components. But what we're finding is more and more, there's this category of companies called non-traditional customers in Avnet's parlance. And these would be the ones that are massive companies that have never built hardware before Mm -hmm. and need help. And they typically will see some of the content that we've created at Dragon or read a blog or what have you and come to us saying, hey, Dragon, can you help us? Mm -hmm. And we can definitely help with the manufacturing, but I think it's an even bigger value add when we can bring in all of the electronic expertise and supply chain expertise from Avnet. Yeah. So Avnet, I think he's a $19 billion company. Yes, they're a big one. I assume that they are a lot bigger than you. (laughs) Yes, by many, many zeros and commas. (laughs) Has it been interesting figuring out how to fit or has it been pretty hands-off? How has it been? No, it's been really interesting in in the best sense of the word. Um, Mm -hmm. They're just really good, solid people. And what I find interesting with Avnet is that they're in a very competitive kind of margin challenge business that's looking to transform and differentiate. And what I love about being part of their team is that I hope that we can bring a new perspective 
and leverage their strengths because they're you know an 800 pound gorilla, but mm-hmm. help them see a new way of doing things. I think one of the things that I'm really proud of as a part of the Avnet team now, as well as Dragon, is that they have been able to turn this you know massive ship over the last couple of years and are building out a really cool ecosystem of which Dragon is a part of it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fun to have like a front row seat. Because it isn't something I, I could never pay to go and like sit and watch, you know, watch this happen. And mm-hmm. it's maybe you'll be in business schools studied years from now, but it's it's awesome to be kind of on the court with them. And the CEO is amazing. And I'll shoot him an email and I'll hear back like in 10 minutes, which is mm-hmm. crazy because he has 15,000 other people that, uh-huh. you know, roll up to him. Yeah. So it's been a, it, it hasn't been easy on either side, but I think like when you work out, you know, it, it hurts, mm-hmm. but you get stronger. Mm. So I want to go back to sort of the beginning of the conversation when you were saying these three things are things that we look as someone who if someone's out there thinking about a hardware based idea and isn't an engineer or doesn't have mechanical engineering experience or electrical engineering experience, how might they best get from that idea to the point where they could work with someone like Dragon? Sure. So I really love Arduino, which is mm-hmm. uh, basically just a very accessible microprocessor. And the the example I'll, I'll give is when we were building the first Roomba, we wanted to find a way to make the motor spin just so the thing could drive around. Mm-hmm. And to do that, it took a couple of master students, probably three weeks to design an H bridge and figure out what transistors and what flyback diodes, and then to go and order those parts because there's 10,000 different you know flavors to pick from, mm-hmm. create the circuit board, send the board out, get the board back, solder it, and then try to write the firmware. So, you know, maybe three weeks and you could spin a motor. Whereas today with an Arduino and my 10-year-old daughter, in five minutes, we can just cut and paste code. You'd be mm-hmm. horrified by what I'm doing with the code. So I, <laughs> it's okay. Full disclaimers there, but like that motor is going to spin. Yeah. Um, I mean, I may have no idea how reliable it is or anything else, but mm-hmm. at that point, you know, then I can start prototyping. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I love, for whatever reason, building Halloween robots that give out candy <laughs> and do it with my kids. We're lucky we have a Mark Forge 3D printer in the basement and a mm-hmm. Glowforge laser cutter. But yeah, in you know a couple, um, maybe a month or two, we have a fully autonomous robot that you can hit a button or hit one of five buttons and get five different types of candy, mm-hmm. and that just wasn't possible, you know, even ten years ago. So I, I love Arduino as an easy way. Um, Raspberry Pi is great if you need a little higher level stuff um, mm-hmm. or you need video, and then uh, BeagleBone is really good for robots. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all great tools, and you can just cut and paste the code to at least get started. It does get a little bit weird if you're trying to do like tighter motor control loops because Mm -hmm. you get into timing and real-time issues. Mm -hmm. But um, any um, middle school student level or above Mm -hmm. can patch something together and and create a pretty compelling demo. That's great. And then in terms of like building a bill of materials, how does someone who's worked with an Arduino and gotten a prototype together know what to put on a bill of materials? Right. So what we find is most people are going to start with Google Sheets or an Excel file. Mm-hmm. And kind of the basics for the bill materials is you want to include everything. So ultimately, if you're going to build the product, you need to include the packaging, how mm-hmm. much tape you're going to use, how many staples, because these are all things that need to be ordered and have costs and lead times and quality control. Mm-hmm. But I think good bomb hygiene is just starting from the beginning and just as a matter of principle, like anytime something goes in, write it down Mm -hmm. and you want to have a name for it. So, you know, staple. And then how many of them do you need? And then ideally a link um, from where you can source it or buy it Mm because you'll have to purchase it at some point. Mm -hmm. 
and then usually the cost. And that's a great way to get started. Yeah. Where it gets more complex and where we try to help companies is as you go from one to many, then the whole supply chain evolves pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Because ordinarily, if you're building it in Arduino, maybe you order from Adafruit or SparkFun mm-hmm. and you get the thing the next day and it's mm-hmm. awesome. But as you build in higher volumes and need to get 5000 or 10000 you can't afford to pay the unit price. Right. You want to get a volume discount price. That's great, but the other side of that is you're probably going to encounter a lead time, and the lead time can be anywhere from one day to more typically 12 weeks. There's a classic case of a multi-layer ceramic capacitor or an MLCC, so Mm -hmm. just a very generic capacitor. Due to a shortage in manufacturing or supply, that lead time went out to 72 weeks. So <laughs> if you like, time. <laughs> pick that component, you're not going to see it for yeah. two years, wow. which might be tough if you're trying to hit the holiday season. Yeah. So later in your your bomb will evolve, and we think about bombs. So does, does the first version of it literally have Arduino on, on yeah, it? Yeah, I would just, yeah. Be, because ultimately it's probably not going to be an Arduino, right? Right. Yeah, I think they run about 14 bucks, so they would mm-hmm. be too expensive. Um, Arduino typically is on an ARM or an Intel, mm-hmm. so you'd want to then go to that whatever the core processor is. And then you would replace the Arduino with that processor. And then there's often a lot of little satellite components that have to support it. Yeah. But yeah, you, the way I think about it is if you were to ask somebody else to go shopping and order everything, you should have in your bomb enough instructions so they would know how to do that. Cool. So now that we've been through that, I, I, I'm hoping we can take a little diversion and, sure. you can, and you can humor me. So at ThoughtBot, you know, we have a good reputation in the design and development community. We have built software products. We have toyed around with a sensor with Arduino to detect whether the bathroom doors are open or shut and have Mm -hmm. a light shining so that people can see it in the office and that kind of thing. People have built their own mechanical keyboards Mm. by soldering them together using a kit. You know, mechanical keyboards among developers and designers are popular. Yes. And there are companies that, like, have made them and said, like, this is our version of this. I don't think we would get thousands of customers, but I could see a scenario where it's like the ThoughtBot keyboard, right? Yeah. That strikes me in the little bit of thinking I've done, though, is that like we're not building that from scratch necessarily because it's it's sort of like a solved mm. problem. It's very modular, and you might be able to get a lot of things that are already existing to put together a mechanical keyboard. Right. Yeah. So what I would think there is on the electronic side, it's a solved problem. Mm -hmm. So figuring out what the processor is and how to deal with that. But it's more of a mechanical, tactile feel, Mm -hmm. geometry issue. Yeah. And being an ME, I get to play with a lot of CAD softwares. One of my favorites is Onshape. They're a good Boston firm. There's a lot of good good ones. A lot of people use SolidWorks, but but I like Onshape. As a step back, I get out and maybe a whittling knife and some Mm -hmm. boards or even before we touch the computer to get an idea of what I wanted. And then when I had something that I liked there, then I'd probably try to go into Onshape and make it a little bit more formal and then 3D print it on whatever your favorite 3D printer is. Mm -hmm. And for the keys, it would depend on the mechanism, you know, just how much travel you want and what sort of responsiveness, which I think in the case of this is where the magic is, Mm -hmm. just because everybody likes potentially something different. Yeah, there's a whole like keyboard testers where you can have all the different kinds of switches. 
and it's a fake keyboard that allows you to try them out and you yes. can just order that. <laughs> yes. And then, um, you know, just source the switches, um, mm-hmm. put them in. And then I think you'd have a, a pretty good working prototype mm-hmm. to see. But yeah, I know there's a lot of, um, I was looking at Keyboardio yes. a little while ago, yep. which is just a beautiful wooden mm-hmm. incarnation of a keyboard. Um, but yeah, that'd be a really fun project. And it's nice that even if you just built one and use it yourself, like that's great. But if it, if it was something you wanted to scale, mm-hmm. then the economics should you know, certainly be there because it should be a relatively low cost of goods sold, mm-hmm. but a higher perceived retail price. Yeah, I, I think so. I don't know that it's something that we'll actually do. If you're listening and you think it's a good idea, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> you, we can open pre-orders if you want to pre-order one. So I wear an Apple Watch and... I've done a good job of upgrading to every single mm. new Apple Watch when it comes out and giving the old one to trade in, either to Gazelle or to Apple and getting something back for it, which I put towards it. And I assume that they recycle it or refurbish mm-hmm. it or that kind of thing. What can people do to be thinking about how do we make the things that we're making be sustainable and recyclable and refurbishable and all yeah that this is a topic we're thinking about really really carefully at dragon and earlier uh, in our conversation i'd use the analogy of the alphabet where mm-hmm. a is the idea and z is delivered to the customer but as i think more and more about sustainability i realize that that's a flawed model um, a is still the idea but z is when the product ends up back in either the mm-hmm. landfill or whatever its base ingredients are um, so it's, you know, uh, what we were representing before is just part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And what we're thinking about is there's the old adage, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. I think so many people now just go to the recycling right. and think it's a lot more effective than it actually is. Mm-hmm. The stats that I remember in studying it a little bit is only 9% of the plastic is actually recycled, mm-hmm. which is, you know, terrible. But we think about that we've broken down. There's four main things on a product. So you've got the paper and cardboard often in the packaging. You've got the plastic, the metal, and then the PCBA or what mm-hmm. ultimately may become e-waste. Mm-hmm. And looking at each one of those, how long do they stick around and um, how harmful are they for the environment? And I also um, should preface it by we're climbing the learning curve. So mm-hmm. um, if anybody's interested in this, we'd love to get feedback um, on it where we are thinking really aggressively about it just because we have the ability to help companies build so many products that we mm-hmm. want to be good stewards for our earth. Uh, but the paper generally is quite recyclable and it doesn't stick around that long. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nice to reduce, but not the biggest problem. The plastic is a challenge because it lasts for up to 450 years, which is 18 generations. Mm-hmm. I'm a sailor, and the last thing I want to see in the Pacific is a big Coke bottle floating mm-hmm. by. So the plastic is a problem. It's also not worth very much. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of incentive to do anything with it. There's a metal, which is worth a lot and tends to be very recyclable. It doesn't degrade as you put it into its next form. And then the e-waste, which has a lot of value, but it's very distributed. Mm -hmm. If memory serves, in a 1,000 cell phones, there's about 35 pounds of gold. So there's good value there. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to get that gold out, Mm -hmm. which is where you get into these terrible villages in China with the young kids using hydrochloric acid to try to free up the the gold because there's value. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also interesting that in 2018, with the SWORD Act, China stopped taking all of um, outside plastic and paper, which I don't know that a lot of people realize. Like I didn't realize it, but we're sort of forced to to deal with that. I think as a result, not my town, but one of the towns around here stopped 
recycling. Yeah. Because they, they have nowhere to put it and they had previously been selling it. I look at that actually as a good thing because I know that when I throw things in the recycling bin, I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'm mm-hmm. pat on the back. I'm doing good things. But half of that's just going to get thrown out in the landfill. It's a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. And I think being forced to deal with our own garbage. In fact, at one point, I was thinking of putting all my garbage in the backyard just as a motivation <laughs> that I would mm-hmm. be more thoughtful in what I mm-hmm. buy. But um, bringing it back to the product side, one of the things we can do to help with products besides reducing, which is hard to convince people to do, um, potentially reusing like the Apple Watch. But if we focus on recycling, make the products easier to recycle. Mm -hmm. So to do that, you have to be able to take them apart and get them into their basic building blocks. And with that, if we think about the plastic side, we have to be able to separate the plastic to get the board out. And that directly impacts the way you design it. So in many cases, what we would have told people is to use ultrasonic welding or overmolding or solvent bonding or any of these ways to very efficiently stick two pieces of plastic together. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of extra space needed. Mm-hmm. But a potentially a better way to do that is just with the screws. They're ugly and they take more space, but they're easier to take apart so mm-hmm. that you can um, separate the plastic from the board. Mm-hmm. Now, realizing a lot of people may not want to take out a screwdriver, so we could take it to to the next level and do some sort of a snap clip where maybe you break off a piece when you're done with it and then the whole thing mm-hmm. comes apart mm-hmm. and you can put the plastic in the bin and the the board I still we don't have a good solution for that mm-hmm. at this point it's also the idea of making things more repairable yeah I know when we were doing the fourth Roomba um, we realized that the current motor configuration would only last a couple hundred hours and we wanted to be able to get it to last 2,000 hours And there's no way we could do that without making parts um, more modular, Mm -hmm. which ended up adding more time to the schedule and introducing more failure modes. But we worked through those. And ultimately, we had a product where if it broke, you could just replace the wheel module or a brush or a side brush. Mm -hmm. And I think that ended up being a much better thing. But for all of these, you know, it's as we've talked about, it's so hard to build a product in the first place. You've got so many things against you to add in all these additional hurdles and probably increase the cost is a challenge. Is there also challenges from the factories doing the manufacturing saying, maybe we shouldn't do it that way. Maybe this way is easier or cheaper or the way we know it or we're comfortable. Some are like that. Some are more progressive and do Mm -hmm. use more compostable plastics or recycled plastics, which is great. I think the factories are all driven by economics. Mm -hmm. So if they see that this is what their customers want, then they can differentiate Mm -hmm. from their competitors by having expertise in it. And I find now as a consumer, I'll definitely pay a little bit more money, even maybe a lot more money for a product that's greener Mm -hmm. than something that's not. So I'm hoping it's a way that companies will realize they can increase their sales by being a little bit better for the earth. Yeah. So you said you're learning, and is it easier or harder than you expected when you set on this path? Yeah, I'm on the fun part of the curve that it's really (laughs) steep, that I feel like every little bit of effort I invest, I get so much out of it. Mm -hmm. So it's really exciting and rewarding. And what I'm trying to do is make it actionable Mm -hmm. so that for all the companies we work with, we can help inform their design to hopefully have a better outcome. Mm -hmm. We've got an amazing company in New York building a really cool product. And they're actually one of the things that spurred me to, to dive into this deeper, but they're really concerned. Um, they want it to last for a long time, mm-hmm. to be modular so you can replace the motor, to use um, bio-friendly plastics. 
and it's it's sort of a good impetus to try to climb the curve mm-hmm. so we can support them better mm-hmm. and then take what we learn and, and apply it to others. It's also nice that it's not um, – there's IP, but I think it's it, – we want to share what we know with everybody yeah. just because maybe somebody else will figure out something mm-hmm. and, and have an impact. Mm-hmm. So it, it's nice to have something that you just want to talk about and, and get a lot of smart people thinking about. You said earlier that you were at iRobot and you had gotten far away from – the actual building of things. Yes. And so you went off and you did your own thing and you got to the point where you're building things again. As CEO of Dragon, are you still close to building things? Yes. So I do it two ways. One, just as a hobby with my kids, Mm -hmm. because I'm an engineer and I have to build things. Mm -hmm. But we always, um, I'll put it this way, I've never been in the military, but there's a saying that I really like from the Marines, that every Marine is a rifleman. So you all have to be able to go and be a Marine, whether you're the cook or, Mm -hmm. you know, a high ranking officer. So what we try to do at Dragon is have everybody in the engineering team, myself included, interact with customers on a regular basis. You know, I've got a few customers that I that I take care of, and it's great that I really enjoy it. And I think it keeps me sharp mm-hmm. so that I don't get too far away from, from my roots. I always love going to factories and mm-hmm. just seeing like how stuff is built. And I don't get to do that as much as I want, but I still try to get to factories as often mm-hmm. as I can. And I'm going to a cool one tomorrow in Lynn that builds sort of customized insulating components for heaters. So something I know nothing about, but it would mm-hmm. be really fun to, to see how they do that. Cool. So you, you mentioned you are a hardware guy. And then when you started, you started to build software platform. Yes. And then you know, you're back to the hardware now. So what's the biggest differences that stand out to you between hardware and software? It was really educational for me. I'm always learning things in hardware, but I've been at it a long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas with software, I actually felt like I think our customers may feel at times mm-hmm. that there's so much stuff I don't know, and it's a whole different language. So for me, I work in Gantt charts and milestones, and it's going to take this long to go from first shots to EP1. Mm-hmm. And in working with our software team, there's sprints and um, a whole process behind that and yeah. things... I found it insanely frustrating, um, <laughs> and I think I'm still working. I'm still recovering from it. But I think, like all CEOs, like I had to get stuff done on a certain mm-hmm. time, and it was really challenging not to have a team say, "Yeah, understood. We'll have this to you on this date." So we think of like in the fuzzy front end is that classic picture of the spiral, mm-hmm. where you just keep iterating. Where for my world, it's very linear. Like. I know how long it takes to go from that prototype through high volume. So it was just a whole different language. And then as you get into even the finance side of it, like I'm very used to revenue, cost of revenue, gross profit operating, and then net profit, Mm -hmm. where getting into SaaS and MRR and ARR and things like that is, again, a whole Mm -hmm. different world that took a lot longer than I expected to climb Mm -hmm. the curve. So yeah, I felt like there's a lot of unknown unknowns and um, really having to trust and rely on other people as opposed to sort of having the experience to know the answer. So yeah. it was a really, really good experience. I imagine in hardware manufacturing, there are problems that happen along the way, right? So you might have a sense that you know exactly how long it should take and what the steps are, but I'm sure that it's like, oh, this thing 
broke or yes. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, and it's one of these where if the design is more solid before you go down the path, you're going to mm -hmm. have a better outcome. But yeah, things always go wrong. And then it's sort of a matter of how quickly can you diagnose and fix the problem. And hopefully there's yeah. an answer to it. Right. We've always found the answer, but you never know that going into right. it. So, you know, obviously as a software person, my perspective, and I think you're right, a lot of it comes down to experience. But having thought through this, for me, the distinction is that software is actually entirely an imaginary reality. It is a construction of the mind. Like mm. it is possible to do essentially anything and it's all made up. <laughs> <laughs> and so that I think is the reason why it boils down to the differences between those two things because it's like writing a story. Mm. You know, you can say, well, I'm going to write this many words a day and, and that kind of thing. Just like you can say, I'm going to write this many lines of code a day or whatever. That doesn't mean you're going to have the right or a good mm. story because it's essentially a creative endeavor where you're coming up with something imaginary, like entirely in a group of people's minds. Mm. You're not bound by the laws of physics, basically, is what it comes down right. to. Yeah, what I'm always struck with in software is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but every case, it's always the same. Like, there's mm -hmm. no friction, there's no temperature variation. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very repeatable. Right. Whereas we find in manufacturing, like, every part's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, to make the example, if you're building really high volume, you may need two sets of cavities, because typically you can get about 7,500 shots or, like, pieces out of a tool every week. Mm -hmm. But if you need to build... 12,000, then you need to create two cavities. And if you're building a clamshell with a top and the bottom, we'll call the top A and the bottom one, mm -hmm. and you have another cavity that it might be a B top and a two bottom, the A and the one may go together, but the A and the two may not fit mm -hmm. um, just because they're a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And then you can multiply that by however many different sets of cavities you have. Mm -hmm. So it, everyone is different that you get yeah. really into tolerance stack up in mm -hmm. a way that software blissfully doesn't have as much. I mean, right. there's plenty of other challenges software right. has, but for manufacturing, that's one we bump into all the right. time. Although I will say that if you just take that as a metaphor, I do think that relates to software, but like everything's made up. So it's like the reason why you get so many sort of mismatches in software is because everything's made up. And so hmm. you're constantly saying, well, I tried this and it didn't work. And I tried this and it didn't work. We built this and now it's different because we now know this or we need to add this mm. thing. And the software you do also build does wear out over time. You know, it, it, <laughs> there's uh, libraries that need to be upgraded mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. So every mm. practice has its challenges, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept of wearing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe mechanical is more predictable in how it wears out mm -hmm. yeah, uh, because it's, yeah. it's real in its physics. Right. Whereas with software, it, again, not my area of expertise, but you know, a new library could be updated at any time right. or break right. a complex system through mm -hmm. a small thing. Yeah. So last year, Dragon worked with Opbot on a short project to validate an idea that you had for a software 
idea. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. weren't coming to us for hardware ideas. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was an incredible experience for us. It was really fun to be the customer instead of the provider. Mm-hmm. I thought of it almost like going to the spa. Like it was fun to interact with that and also to learn, you know, consulting is kind of siloed. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice to sort of see how another company ran their process. So that was some of the most fun I had last winter. Really <laughs> awesome experience. But what we were trying to do is understand if there was a place in the market for what we called the scheduler. Mm-hmm. So in our world, there's basically three things, cost, quality, and schedule. And we're always trying to balance them. And historically, we'd focused on costs because it tends to be what people care about the most. Mm-hmm. And it's very mathematical. But we wanted to expand our offering and see if we could launch a new new SaaS product. So we, we thought we'd dive in on the schedule side. And where schedule gets tricky in manufacturing is you bump into the lead times, which we talked a little bit about, that mm-hmm. they, they can vary. How do you deal with something if it breaks? So what impact does that have mm-hmm. overall? You could think of almost the critical path and then being able to deal with that. We're also, um, we build a lot around the world and every country has a different set of holidays. Mm-hmm. So as you're creating a schedule, it's really important to know, are you you know working in the US where July 4th, you might want to add a little bit of delay or are you building in China where you have this massive two week Chinese mm-hmm. New Year? Mm-hmm. So the idea that you could just drop in different countries and then see what the impact is on that. So we built up a really cool prototype, which was kind of the output of doing a few days of a lot of work with stickies, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's the customer problem we're trying to solve. And really, it was cool to take a high level approach rather than get in, like being an engineer, I love to just mm-hmm. getting in to build things. But the stickies and storyboarding were really helpful to create basically almost a film on the, bla- on the whiteboard mm-hmm. of the customer journey through the product. And then amazingly in a day, the team put together a clickable prototype to mm-hmm. see what it would look like. And then we provided, I think it was about eight to 10 different names of customers or people mm-hmm. that would be knowledgeable. And then the Thapa team did effectively interviews with them to walk them through the product and to see if they found value in it or not. And at the end of the day, what we all realized is that there was some value to what we were doing, but it wasn't really something companies were willing to pay for. Mm -hmm. And it was also something that would provide the information once, but then, you know, they had what they needed and there wasn't a lot of reason to re-engage with the software. So it would be more challenging to do a SaaS model behind that. Mm -hmm. So for us, ultimately, we decided, rightly so, not to go forward with the project. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing is, you know, for the I think it was about a two-week investment in time. We saved countless times of going down a rat hole just to realize that like, oh, maybe not the idea that we should pursue right now. Mm -hmm. So that was um, really helpful on that front. And then also just interacting with the gifted team, sort of helping us think differently and approach it a a different way, gave us a tool set that ultimately, when we are looking at different products from RFQ apps to help factories manage their request for quote, we just lifted that whole thing and did our own sticky sessions on Mm -hmm. the board. So it was more than just the prototype, um, but the methodology to think through it. That's great to hear because that's what customers often say is like, oh, we came to you for this, like design development. And what the biggest deliverable or takeaway that we got was learning how you work. Yes. So it's great to hear uh, that. Now, I wasn't involved in the day-to-day of the project, but one of the things I remember at the time was you really did approach it as a validation exercise. Mm -hmm. 
and you were willing to not go forward if it wasn't validated. A pitfall that a lot of companies have is they're sort of going through the motions of validation and it doesn't Mm -hmm. There's a risk that no matter what it shows, they're going to figure out, you know, oh, we're moving forward anyway, because what what are we going to do? We, we've right. already committed to it. And I think for us, we were lucky that we did it early on, mm-hmm. that we could still pivot. You know, it wasn't a make or break. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because of that, we got a couple of shots on goal mm-hmm. as opposed to just having to make one thing work. So we're big believers in failing fast. You know, I was excited that we got to help you do that. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an analogous thing to hardware? Like, is it the prototyping stage or, or is there some other way to yeah, fail it's, fast? It's a little tricky in that it mm-hmm. takes, I won't say more effort, but more time mm-hmm. to get to a point where a customer can give a fair assessment. Yeah. And I think many companies tend to reinvent the wheel or not do as quick and dirty of an MVP as maybe they should, mm-hmm. just because it's fun to design and 3D print. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always loved crowdfunding, mm-hmm. and it's nice there that you can test out a product to see if at least that demographic is willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the challenge is that might be not the customers that you're ultimately trying to sell to. But it also does provide the capital up front that can then be used to buy tooling so you don't yeah. have to put it out of pocket. Yeah. I think the challenge now is people expect you know, a really production-grade video, which yeah. costs a lot of money. So it's evolved a bit. But in the early days, it was, it was great. And mm-hmm. you know, companies like Pebble and so on, really, they didn't spend a huge amount of money on the first one and got you know, outsized returns. Mm-hmm. So I'm still a big fan of crowdfunding or, or pre-sales to test it. But because it's physical, it it just takes a little longer. And most things that we work with involve still software, which is often firmware on the device, and then everything needs a SaaS model. So it's Mm got to find a way to get through the radios and securely to the cloud and then do something in the cloud, as well as electronics and mechanicals. So it's software plus all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you a question which a lot of people ask me, which is, Oh, you're a consulting company. You help people do this. Are you going to make a product of your own? Right. So when we get asked that all the time, Mm -hmm. so we go on the fence. You know, Mm -hmm. we are really mindful that we never want to compete with our customers. Mm -hmm. So that would be one thing. Two is coming up with the idea and then putting in all the effort to build it would take a lot of resources away that wouldn't generate a profit for quite some time. And right now they're directly billable to our customers. The only product we've really considered building ourselves is uh, one that's not commercially viable, but just to demonstrate, mm-hmm. you know, what what we can do. And a good example would be for Proto Labs. They have a great cube. So Proto Labs is a quick turn injection molding shop mm-hmm. where if you want plastic parts in two weeks, they can give them to you. Mm-hmm. They've got a really cool cube that shows different wall thicknesses and shrinkage and finishes and mm-hmm. bosses and shutoffs and all this. So it has no commercial value, mm-hmm. but it demonstrates what they can do. And I'm sure they got satisfaction building it. Yeah. So we've often thought about that. But I think as long as we're in the consulting business, we're just going to help our customers build their products. Cool. Well, Scott, thanks for stopping by the studio and and sharing all the knowledge about how to bring new hardware to market. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, Chad. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. If people want to follow along with you or get in touch with you, what's the best places for them to do that? Sure. Yeah, we're at dragoninnovation.com or uh, at Dragon Innovate. And we love to talk about hardware. So would welcome any any sort of questions. Awesome. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. 
This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, let's build something great together.